Real quick, we wanted to tell you about another podcast called Economics Detective Radio. On it, you'll find answers to questions you didn't know you had, like what can the Volkswagen emissions scandal tell us about car exhaust and public health? What's the relationship between maritime trade policy and the merchant marine? And what can a 1920 border closure tell us about immigration and the economy? Find out more on Economics Detective Radio, available now wherever you listen to podcasts. We absolutely have to find a way in this country to totally transform our healthcare system into something that works for all citizens. And in a post-COVID world where uh, anybody with uh, COVID anybody is potentially denied a claim based on a pre-existing condition. There is just a huge political fight ahead of us. I mean, these may be the most important 40 days for the future of our democracy that we might have ever had. From the offices of Civic Ventures in downtown Seattle, this is Pitchfork Economics with Nick Hanauer. It's like Econ 101 without all the BS. I'm Nick Hanauer, founder of Civic Ventures. I'm David Goldstein, senior fellow at Civic Ventures. Since the onset of the COVID-19 shock to the economy, roughly 6.2 million workers have lost access to health insurance that they previously got through their employer, uh, according to the best measure of net employment change, which is just, it's just staggering, right? Yeah. And it's nuts. It's crazy. It's just not, it's not a way to run an economy. It's not a way to run a healthcare system. It dwarfs the lost coverage uh, that we experienced during the, the biggest job losing period of the Great Recession. And we absolutely have to find a way in this country to totally transform our healthcare system into something that works uh, for all citizens and in the context of the broader economy and at all times. And the pandemic has proved, I think, beyond a shadow of a doubt, how idiotic an employer-based healthcare system is, right? Because in a circumstance where millions of people are losing their jobs and thus their healthcare during a healthcare crisis. Right. Right. <laughs> because of a healthcare crisis, that's a great way to prove to yourself that having an employer based healthcare system is idiotic and counterproductive. Today, we get to talk to this fantastic guy, Abdul El Sayed, who's a physician and epidemiologist, a public health expert, uh, a really interesting character. My name is Dr. Abdul El Sayed. I am a physician, epidemiologist, and progressive activist, and um, just wrote a book called Healing Politics, A Doctor's Journey into the Heart of Our Political Epidemic. And early next year in February, I've got another one coming out with my co-author, Dr. Micah Johnson, Medicare for All, A Citizen's Guide. I uh, hope folks will check them out. With a Supreme Court nomination battle heading our way, it looks like Republicans are planning on confirming a new justice just before they hear a contest against the Affordable Care Act. If you could just start off at least talking about what's at stake here if they were to uh, throw out uh, Obamacare and protections against pre-existing conditions and all that. Yeah, well, basic health care access for 20 million Americans the ability for health insurance corporations to discriminate against people with pre-existing conditions and basically deny them health care coverage because they are sick, and the health care economy as we know it. I think 
you know, in so many ways, this is a moment that speaks to the worst in the way that our system is so fragile and leaves people so insecure. And there is just a huge political fight ahead of us. I mean, these may be the most important 40 days for the future of our democracy that we might have ever had, um, certainly in times of relative peace. And so it really is a scary time. Um, you know, as a former health director, I'm often uh, reminded that numbers don't do as good a job in explaining what's at stake as the, the stories of people's lives. And we have to remember when we talked about that big number, 20 million, every one of those people is somebody with a particular set of precarious circumstances who has, you know, joys and fears and people who love them and people they love. And we can't forget that those are 20 million different stories of folks who, who could very well be failed by uh, our government right now. And and in a post-COVID world where uh, anybody with uh, uh, COVID, anybody is potentially denied a claim based on a pre-existing condition? That's right. You know, we don't know what the long-term consequences of COVID-19 are going to be. This disease has only really been in humans now for about nine months. And uh, we don't know what the implications are. And so you can imagine a moment where even people who had asymptomatic COVID-19 are experiencing complications of that infection 3, 10, 20 years on. And in a world where we have private health insurance corporations who then are allowed to discriminate against them, you could imagine a circumstance where a large swath of Americans are barred from, from being able to get health care because of the consequences of the same party that barred them from having health care failing to take on this COVID-19 pandemic. So on one side of uh, their mouths, they're talking about herd immunity, this extremely wayward, scientifically uh, unsubstantiated approach to taking on this disease. And on the other side of their mouth, they're talking about taking away people's health care um, in the context of the pandemic that they are uh, actively facilitating because of, of their choices. It is absurd and, and, and it's just so cynical about uh, feeding the, the interests of those who have money at the costs of, of those who don't. So your book starts with this really interesting quote, medicine is, so, is a social science and politics is nothing else but medicine on a large scale. So explain that translated into at least pandemic terms. Yeah, well, you know, it, it's, it's easy to look at medicine, especially nowadays, given how much science has given us as a, a sterile scientific endeavor. But let's not forget that we're talking about healing people. And that has deep social implications. And frankly, even to practice medicine well is not enough just to understand the science of why people get sick. One also has to understand the social science of why people get sick. After all, if this pandemic has taught us anything, is that, you know, it's not just about the pathophysiology of this virus underneath our skin. It is also about the pathophysiology of our society in ways that happen above our skin, right? Who gets access to a good job that pays a living wage? Who gets access to healthcare? Who's allowed to stay home and work from behind a computer screen? Who has to go to work in the midst of, of a global pandemic? These are questions of social pathology, not of simply biological pathology. And if we're serious about, about healing, then we have to take on the social dimensions. Uh, it's a quote from Rudolf Virchow, who operated on both fronts. He frankly, is the father of modern pathology, the mapping of biological failure to, to the symptoms that uh, we see when people get sick. 
but also he was a leader in the Liberal Party in Austria, um, actually <laughs> faced off against Otto von Bismarck multiple times uh, as Bismarck wanted to, to enact policies that benefited you know, the ruling class. Um, Verkau was always there uh, in opposition. There's actually a really fun story I shared in the book about a duel that Bismarck challenged uh, Verkau to. And Verkau said, you know, I don't duel, but I'll challenge you to a sausage duel, which meant they'd have two sausages. One of them would be loaded with roundworm larvae, and uh, whoever ate the poisoned one would, would end up getting sick. And Bismarck was like, yeah, that's too, that's too far for me, bro. Um, and so, uh, <laughs> and so he, he backed off. But, um, you know, this is someone who recognized that it's not just about the science. It's also about the social science and about recognizing the social dimensions and the political dimensions of, of how people get sick and why they get sick in, in societies. So you're part of the Biden-Sanders Unity Task Force uh, on the future of healthcare. Tell us about, you know, the glorious future. <laughs> Should, uh, Should Joe Biden happen? get elected? <laughs> well, you know, I'll tell you, I, I could have told you a lot more, um, of course, before the passing of the late great uh, Justice Ginsburg, because, you know, right now the future of the ACA itself hangs in the balance. And of course, if, if the ACA is deemed unconstitutional, uh, it's going to mean that we're not only going to have to to claw back what might have been lost, but also to think differently. And so it really may change the approach that a future Biden administration could take to health care. But, you know, assuming that the ACA stays in place, which I think is a very tenuous assumption, the plan was to uh, create a, a far more muscular version of a public option than the vice president initially ran on in the primary. Now, to be clear, I support Medicare for all. It's one of the reasons I got into to politics and it's the reason I've you know, co-wrote a book uh, about it. But recognizing that Bernie Sanders did not win the primary, the question that I had, as well as my colleagues who were Sanders appointees, including Representative Jayapal, Pramila Jayapal of, of, of Washington, uh, who is um, the lead sponsor of the Medicare for all bill in the House, uh, as well as Don Berwick, a former um, Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services uh, Administrator. Uh, our goal was to ask, how do we uh, build the case for stronger public health care? How do we provide health care for folks who right now cannot afford it? And how do we take on the power of corporations uh, that have dominated it? And a lot of the recommendations that we were able to come together with uh, representatives on the other side, um, folks who were really leading the, the fight for Joe Biden's health care plan, and ask, how do we do this thing together, even if we may disagree on the central premise of what we ought to do. And what we were able to come together on is uh, a public option that's a lot more muscular. It's fully uh, funded and, and, and subsidized for folks earning less than $52,000 a year for a family of four, 200% uh, of poverty. It is uh, deductible free. It would be uh, truly a public option, meaning corporations could decide to, rather than buying private health insurance for their employees, enroll them on the public option. And I think probably most critically, it would allow uh, CMS, Medicare, to negotiate the price of prescription drugs on behalf of every single American, which of course is illegal right now because of pharma lobbying. And so these are really important investments in public health care that um, really would provide health care to a lot of folks who don't have it. But at the same time, you know, to me, you look at the issues that we have in our healthcare system, and I, I don't see how Medicare for All is not the most elegant, most simple, uh, most politically palatable approach to solving them all. And you know, we may maintain 
uh, disagreements on that front, but I think it's really important right now to recognize what the alternative is, uh, which is Donald Trump. And he has no health care plan, despite the fact that he keeps dangling one from a string. He has not intended to have a health care plan. He simply wants to undo uh, what his predecessor did. And, um, you know, in, in, in so many ways, this very cynical approach to appointing a Supreme Court justice to replace one of the lionesses uh, of justice in our society, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, is a ploy to just undo what Obama did without uh, any real investment in, in even thought uh, into how, how to take on this very naughty and, 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 and complex problem. I'm going to uncharacteristically strike an optimistic note and wonder if, ironically, if they strike down the ACA, does that leave Medicare for all as the only constitutional option? Unless they also strike down Medicare, <laughs> which I wouldn't put it beyond them. But if Medicare is constitutional, certainly Medicare for all is. You're just you know expanding it to everybody. Well, it's a, it's a very simple solution. You're basically taxing people and then providing a good, which is, you know, if you struck that down, basically you'd say government can't exist anymore um, because that's what government does. Um, well, they're going you know, there. They're trying. Uh, they certainly are trying. And, um, you know, what I will say is, though, is that if we lose the Supreme Court battle, I worry a lot, not just about the ACA, uh, but all about, you know, Roe v. Wade, for example, which is critical to providing health care for people with uteruses. And, um, you know, y you think about all of the other laws and policies that have tried in this country to, to promote uh, more justice and more equity and more sustainability. I worry a lot about their future. And so, you know, this is a fight that I think starts with health care, but, you know, could go a long, long way beyond it. And there's a lot we need to be fighting for. I've been thinking hard about health care for a long time and in my role as a technology entrepreneur tried to build essentially an alternative pathway uh, for providing people healthcare some time ago. It failed for a variety of reasons, most, most notably because the insurance industrial complex hated it. But it definitely taught me that progressives are great at talking about providing healthcare for everyone without providing a plausible, either a plan or a narrative that explains to people how we're going to do that in a more affordable way. Because the healthcare problem in America is twofold. The, the first is not everybody has it, but the fundamental problem is that it costs roughly twice as much per person per year to do healthcare in the United States as it does in every other industrialized nation. And that is the fundamental problem, mm -hmm. is the economic arrangements that are in place that lead a colonoscopy to cost $500 in Germany and $5,000 in the United States. This is the problem. You're spot on. Right. And by the way, I don't mean the price you're charged. I mean the fundamental cost of the operation. Mm -hmm. Right. And I certainly haven't heard anything about what we do to rearrange the economic feedback loops in the healthcare system to bring the cost of doing things down enough so that we can quite easily afford to provide everybody with healthcare. Right. So, so I guess to, to sum up that question, apart from uh, negotiating drug prices, would a robust public option dramatically bring down costs? Well, you know, I think the the challenge, right, that those of us who support Medicare for All uh, have is 
uh, exactly this one is how do you address not just the high cost, but the system that created the high cost. And the reason why Medicare for All is so effective to doing that is because it creates a government monopsony, right? A lot of folks know what a monopoly is. It's a mm -hmm. single seller of a good. A monopsony is a single buyer of a good. And both a monopsony, like a monopoly, has the power to set a price. And you know, if the government is setting the price for healthcare, it uh, eliminates this adverse feedback loop whereby both the insurance corporations and the healthcare provider corporations have more incentive to negotiate using each other against their competitors than they do to negotiate on behalf of the ostensible customer. And that leaves us in the system more like a product than, than a customer. And Medicare for All solves that by basically eliminating all of the insurance side of it and setting a singular price, which also eliminates a lot of the overhead that uh, inflates price in the United States as well. You know, there are ways to get through there, which we talk about in the plan, and I know that the Biden team is interested in engaging with, which is price setting, right? If you know that one of the reasons that the costs continue to go up in the system is because, because the prices can go up, one of the ways to do that is just to the, for the government to set the price, to say, basically, this is the price of an MRI. And no matter what the provider is or who the insurer is, that you set that price. That being said, it's a lot more elegant to do under Medicare for All because you do it naturally by leveraging market laws, uh, but, but, but doing that by uh, basically making one buyer of healthcare, which is the government. So there's a way to do it. It's just a lot more complex and it's hard to uh, explain. And this is the bigger picture here of healthcare is that it is so complex to explain to folks because most folks don't. I mean, I'm, I'm a doctor. My wife's a doctor. And, you know, when it comes time for us to buy our insurance through her employer, half the time we have to sit down and actually negotiate, you know, leveraging an actuarial table, what we think is the best rate, right? And, and this is as a physician epidemiologist. And so if it's opaque to me, I, I can't imagine how opaque it is to the average user. And so we've just got to do a lot better about being simple about it. And one of the things that Medicare for All does, which is so important, is to simplify the process for people. If the only insurer in town is Medicare, it changes the conversation. Now, a lot of doctors would say, well, I wouldn't be able to exist if all I was able to bill is Medicare, blah, blah, blah. And the problem with that argument is that underlying it is a certain lack of imagination, right? You, you could change the reimbursement rates as you needed to make sure that doctors are made whole. There's a second order piece here, if we want to get really into the weeds, that I also think is really important. One of the things that we've seen uh, across the healthcare industry right now is deep consolidation uh, both on the insurer side and on the provider side. And particularly on the provider side, as the, the larger providers have been able to negotiate better rates per unit care, they've been able, in effect, to outcompete you know, the individual doctor who's got their shingle out. And so it's forcing those doctors to, in effect, rather than being owners of their own business, to become simply employees of a much larger corporation. And what that means is that their share of the earnings of their own work falls. And under Medicare for All, because there's one rate, now if you're a, you know, a, a small private practice or you're a large system, you're still getting the same, uh, the same reimbursement per unit care, which means that if you're good at what you do and you're efficient and you're effective, you can grow. And you can have your own business too. And so I actually think it's in, in, in doctors' best interests to be able to work in a system where they don't have to worry about you know, the, the large health system swallowing up their practice because they just can't compete. 
I hadn't thought about that before, that it actually uh, recreates an environment where uh, doctors can choose to be entrepreneurial if that if that's what they want instead of employees. Right. Mm-hmm. That's exactly right. One of the questions we love to ask is the benevolent dictator question, <laughs> which is if, if you were in charge of uh, America's healthcare system, politics aside, what, you know, what are the top three things you would do? How should we reconstitute this giant mess? Yeah, f- fix this for us. I would rapidly and very quickly establish a democracy, clearly. Uh, but then, uh, but then, uh, I would, um, look there, I think there are the the big three for me are number one, we would pass Medicare for all, um, because I think it addresses so many of the inefficiencies in the healthcare system as it stands. It provides every single person healthcare and it reduces the overall cost and also the increasing rate of, of cost in our society. That's number one. Number two, though, I would massively invest in public health. In fact, I would put Medicare for all under uh, the public health uh, infrastructure in this country because the best single thing we can do is prevent someone from getting sick in the first place. And we spend so little on public health in our society and it shows, right? We're in the midst of a global pandemic and our public health apparatus was caught flat-footed in large part because we have a president who's an incompetent buffoon, but also because the institutions themselves aren't geared to take the reins uh, when they need to. And then the, the third thing I would do is I would really seek to reintegrate uh, aspects of healthcare that I think we have we have wrongly cut away from from the healthcare conversation. Things like dental coverage and mental health coverage and long term services and support coverage, because those are critical public health and healthcare services that ought to be uh, negotiated uh, in the same package of goods. Right, <laughs> the notion that we in the conversation, cut the head off, right? So no mental health care, no dental health care, no, no. How, um, what's the history of that? How did, that's crazy. How did that it happen? Is. Well, um, you know, it, it is because uh, we traditionally sort of dentistry was practiced as its own thing uh, uh-huh. versus medicine. Um, and that, that that's sort of just an accident of history. But also, you know, because the, the way that healthcare developed was in reference to infectious diseases, right? And we step way back before we even had um, you know, the germ theory of disease, right? The, the goal was to save lives. And the thing that killed most people was infectious diseases. And so much of the advent of medicine was built around protecting people from infectious diseases rather than investing in the, the long-term functionality of a body, right? Because we just wanted to save your life at, at that point, right? Now we've come to a point where, you know, even chronic diseases are really about long-term care management, rather than, you know, uh, life-saving care in one point. And frankly, I would argue that the hospital itself as an institution is a bit of an anachronism, right? We still have hospital-based care because we originated hospitals in a time when, you know, treatment was you came in very sick, we treated you, and then you left as healthy as you were when you came in. Now you're talking about the long-term management of chronic diseases. So everything's about managing uh, people's functional abilities. And so we've, we've sort of had this convergent evolution and we look at these systems and say, well, why don't we invest in making sure that people can see and people can hear and people's teeth are healthy and people are feeling uh, good and, and are well-situated and functional in their lives through uh, mental health supports in the same system that you know we care for their liver and, and manage their diabetes and make sure that they don't have heart disease. It doesn't make any sense, but in part, it's, it's a function of you know, the evolution of healthcare uh, over time. Yeah, crazy. 
I'm sorry, I took you on a tangent. Did you have a third uh, thing you would do as benevolent dictator? Yeah, my third, my third, um, you know, after, of course, develop, uh, establishing democracy was um, to reintegrate mental health care, dental health care, uh, vision okay. and hearing support and oral health care uh, into the, the system. Okay, well, I'm, I'm, I'd vote for you for benevolent dictator. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> As, especially the the restore democracy part. That's uh, that's always important <laughs> that we end with that. I'm imagining just this like severe tautology here, where you know I, I reestablish democracy, and then you're like, no, be the dictator. I'm like, no, back to democracy, and then we're just <laughs> bouncing back and forth. I mean, like, no, you sir, no, you sir. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, here's hoping. Uh, speaking of uh, democracy, here's hoping you have a chance to help the uh, Biden administration uh, fix these problems. Well, I appreciate that. There's a lot of problems to fix, and you know, as an yeah. epidemiologist and former health commissioner, I um, I have felt a little bit like a general who trained for you know for the the big war, and uh, and now I'm I'm somewhat missing it. And I you know really I watch what's happening right now. And I feel like there is so much we need to do to get it right. And it'd be a privilege to be a part of that. Well, thanks so much for being with us. It was a fantastic conversation. Yeah. Thanks. It was my privilege. And, uh, you know, I, any, any opportunity I get to wonk out about healthcare, I, I, I never miss it. So thank you. So Nick, on the one hand, talking with Abdul makes me feel uh, really confident that there are competent people uh, working with uh, what we hope will be an incoming Biden administration to get a handle on this crisis. At the same time, oh my God, what happens What happens if, uh, I won't say if Biden doesn't win, if he's not allowed to take office. <laughs> always, the, always the ray of sunshine. You know, Goldie, I mean, when you said that you had a glimmer of optimism, you know, I'd never quite thought of it that way. But if these clowns do eliminate the Affordable Care Act, it may be the world's best forcing function to get, the, mm -hmm. to get it right. It may be the world's best opportunity to provide medi essentially Medicare for all or Medicare for everyone who wants it. <laughs> right. Because in the absence of an alternative, the Republican Congress uh, is going to be looking down the barrel of, you know, 20 to 40 million incredibly pissed off people and all the people who know those people. And, and potentially no other constitutional option. If they close the door to an Affordable Care Act style system, then, you know, uh, government health insurance uh, may be the only thing that's available to the federal government to address this. Correct. So, you know, unintended consequences can always happen. And it's, I wanted to bring back, we're, we're, we're talking about this within a COVID context. Uh, and I wanted to get to some of both the, the economic issues here, Nick, and of course, the um, racial and gender issues. I mean, even the CDC has acknowledged that COVID has disproportionately impacted people of color both in terms of higher infection rates and in higher mortality rates. I mean, these are people who are disproportionately low-wage workers and therefore, uh, ironically, essential workers, but also people who economically could not afford to stay home. They didn't right. have that option. If their, if their job was still there, they had to take it and they had to go to work and put themselves and their families at risk. Yeah. But it's not just COVID. 
couple weeks ago, uh, you and David Rolfe published your piece in Time magazine about the $50 trillion trans upward redistribution of income from the bottom 90% to the to the uh, top 1%. And you write about how both in terms of COVID and an income in general, it disproportionately impacts women and people of color. And I want to bring this point up because I've been doing some research on my own. And it should not be surprising to anybody that when you track health outcomes, when you look and the number one outcome is longevity, what's the best predictor of life expectancy? Wealth. The higher your income, the longer you live. The lower your income, the sooner you die. Across the board. So anybody who tells us, oh, stop complaining about the American healthcare system, it's the best in the world, and oh, sure, it's more expensive than everybody else's, but it's providing the highest quality uh, healthcare in the world. Yeah, for you, Nick, for people (laughs) like you, and for people like me, but for the vast majority of Americans, no. The lower your income, the poorer your health, the shorter your lifespan, and that is, it's just totally immoral. Yeah. It is heartening to hear from people like Abdul who, uh, you know, I think clearly understand these problems super well. And, um, you know, in about, what is it, 45 days, we're going to find out if people like that are going to be in charge or not. On the next episode of Pitchfork Economics, it's another Ask Me Anything where Nick and I will be answering your questions. Pitchfork Economics is produced by Civic Ventures. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Civic Action and Nick Hanauer. Follow our writing on Medium at Civic Skunkworks and peek behind the podcast scenes on Instagram at Pitchfork Economics. As always, from our team at Civic Ventures, thanks for listening. See you next week.